So, while we were reading through the parasha, I had a flash of insight that I never realized before. Do you remember what the name of the town was before Yaakov renamed it Betel? Luz. So I was thinking, what would the name of the people be who lived in that town? Loser, <laughs> Loser maybe? So, I don't know. Maybe they were really grateful that some guy came along and finally changed the name of the town from like, loser to, I was from God. Maybe that's what Yeshua does with us too. How's that for like an epiphany for you this morning? So that's not in my notes. I'm just throwing that one in absolutely free for you. Oh, thank you. That was a good biblical joke. If my wife thinks it's good, then it really is good. Because she, she has a very high tolerance level built up to my jokes. So if she thinks one is good, it's like, yes. I have to write that one down and like use it re- regularly. Yeah. So um, we we uh we want to get to know Yeshua better. So we are going to be looking at two two things that Yeshua is passionate about that he was passionate about in the scripture. And it's actually quite interesting. One of them is going to be Yeshua's relationship to his people, the Jewish people. And when you look at this parsha, you see that Yaakov, who was re- renamed Israel, married two girls, Leah and Rachel. And interestingly enough, some of the early Christians saw a parallel there, Lee and Rachel, with um, believers from the Jewish community and believers from the nation. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at a quote from Justin Martyr about that. We're going to look at a, a mosaic from an early uh, church structure. And it, that's going to be pretty interesting. So in, in, this, in this story we just read, uh, Yeshua is out, like, outside of the land of Israel. He's hiking with his Talmudim, his disciples. Who knows what they're doing? They're probably just trying to get away from the crowd and get some quiet time with each other. You know, he's, he's pouring into these guys. And uh, sure enough, someone tracks him down. There's this lady who's desperate. She has a daughter and she's, her daughter's demon-possessed. So she, she probably, she's exhibiting probably some mental issues and she's really troubled, right? And I mean, this mom, she hears that there's this healer in the area and so she tracks him down and um, she's following them around and she's like, help us, help us. And uh, Yeshua ignores her. Like, like she's not even there. He just keeps going from all, from all appearances in the story. And finally his disciples are like, Master, like, can you get her to leave us alone? This is getting annoying. You know, can you just get her to be quiet or something? And, um, and then he has a dialogue with her. And looking at this story from a Western perspective, our fr- what's your gut reaction? I mean, seriously, it's like, man, that was really cold. I mean, he comes across like a racist. Or like, or, or like you can list some of the things that people, people would respond to this story. But um, as, as the story goes on, we see that Yeshua is drawing something out in her. And he, he, my, my understanding is he's seeing if she has real faith. And sure enough, she does, because she has a faith that presses in, that engages with him. And just like Jacob wrestled with the Holy One all night for his blessing, this lady's not going to let go. Like, she's not going to leave them alone until she gets that healing for her daughter. And so he gives it to her. And it's a fantastic story. But it raises some questions about what was Yeshua's relationship to the Jewish community, and what was his relationship to people from the nations? Because you can see there's a difference here. He had a different way of relating to people from the nations as he did to the Jewish community. And I just wonder how that might apply today. So we're going to look into a couple themes along those lines. Um, one nice little element about this story that um, will maybe soften it a little bit is um, when Yeshua says it isn't right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, um, you may have heard that in the, the Delich Hebrew-English translation that we were reading from. It said, little dogs. So that, that's the idea of puppies or a pet dog, right? 
So it's kind of softening it to look at it like, how many of you have had a pet dog growing up in the home? Okay. For how many of you was like your pet dog like a member of the family? For a lot of people, like if you have a puppy or a member of the fa- uh, like a, a pet dog, that's a member of the family, right? That isn't like some wild dog out there. So that's uh, it. Kind of softens the story a little bit to say, you know, they're, they're children and they're puppies, and there's so much bread, and you just can't give the kids bread to the puppies. And um, but she she presses in, right? She wasn't phased by that. So that that hopefully gives you a little bit of context that helps to soften that story a little bit. So Yeshua's reply to this woman is he had a mission and he was sent to a specific group of people and she just didn't happen to be one of them. At that point in time, his mission was to a group of people that he called the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so notice a couple things here. The house of Israel equals the Jewish community in this story. He wasn't even sent to the religious people who thought they had it all together and were on track and had all their Torah ducks in a row. He's, he, from Yeshua's understanding, he was sent to the lost ones. Like the people who were way out there. The marginalized people. The non-religious Jews. The, the guys who were disoriented, spiritually speaking. The people who had lost their connection to the Jewish community. These are the kinds of people that Yeshua had a real heart for. These are the people that he had a heartbeat for. And he said, these are the people that I... I'm on mission to reach. Hmm. I wonder if Yeshua, if that isn't still his heartbeat. I wonder if that isn't how he still comes to the Jewish community and maybe to, maybe to the world in general. Makes me wonder, if Yeshua came to PA, who would he be going to? Yeshua is coming to PA. Who is he going to? I, you know, and if we really get on track with him, I wonder what that's going to look like. As, as we continue to get on track with him and get in touch with that aspect of who he is. Um, Yeshua's emissary, Shaul, several decades later, writing his like magnum opus epistle to the early Yeshua community in Rome, said this, the gospel, like the Besorah, the message of Messiah, it's first for the Jew and also to the Greek, i.e. The, the Gentile, right? And again, like often people would look at that and be like, that sounds racist. I mean, is God playing favorites? Does, does God play favorites? And I've, I've had some interesting debates with people on Facebook about that. People saying, God doesn't play favorites. Everyone's equal. The Jewish people have no distinction whatsoever in the eyes of God. And, and when, when you read the whole counsel of the Word of God, I would, I would hesitate with that concept. Why did Paul say the gospel is first for the Jewish people? Well, there are several reasons, but we see in this story one example of it. Yeshua had such a heart to reach the the disconnected members of the Jewish community. Maybe that's one reason. Um, how does that apply today? Let's say in, in missiology, right? As we, as we study the culture around us, as we plan, make plans as a broader movement to reach out to new, uh, let's say to new people groups or languages. Sometimes I, I feel like this is, a, this is like part of our mission that we've really dropped the ball on historically as a, as a broader Christian community. Like, when it comes to prioritizing reaching the Jewish people for Yeshua, or structuring our, the way we do community, so that it will be understandable to them, or using Hebrew terms so Jewish people can connect, like, like man, maybe a D or an F or something, eh? It's just, it hasn't been in our minds. Uh, sadly, today, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of wonderful believers who love Israel, who pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and, and, and like God bless them for that, you know? But at the same time, when it comes to actually knowing how to reach a Jewish person with the gospel of Mashiach, you know, that's a whole other ballgame. And, and that's an area where, where I hope we continue to really wake up as a broader Christian community and really continue to train ourselves and train each other in how to accurately represent Yeshua 
to, uh, to national Israel. So, um, uh, Linda, some of, some of your trip for, to, to Israel, for instance, and some of the things the Father was speaking to you, you know, as you were telling some of those stories, like when you were on the airplane, and you saw those guys um, binding to fill in, you know, phylacteries, and what the Father told you about how, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what you said, but he saw their hearts, and that was a blessing to them, and look at their devotion and that kind of thing. And I just thought, that's so cool. He, he was teaching you something about how to represent Yeshua to, uh, to his people, eh? So that would be an example of that, that we can kind of springboard off of from this parasha. Um, I want to read a verse with you from, it's later in Paul's epistle to the Yeshua community in Rome. It's in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. You can read it with me. It says, For I say that Messiah has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. So did you notice a couple things from this? Firstly, Yeshua became a servant. Firstly, to the circumcision. Who, who are the circumcision? That's Paul's way of saying the Jewish people, right? So Yeshua became a servant to the circumcision, the Jewish people, and to who else? To the Gentiles, to, to the nations of planet Earth. So Yeshua has become a servant to everybody, right? But did you notice that there are two specific, it's like a, it's like a two-pronged mission. His mission to the Jewish people is designed to produce a slightly different result than his mission to the nations. Yeshua came to the Jewish people and became a servant to the Jewish people to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So everything that the Holy One spoke to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, Yeshua came to confirm those promises. Not to cancel them out, not to put an expiration date on them, but to confirm them, to make good on those promises. And why did He come to the Gentiles? Why did He become a servant to the Gentiles? To glorify God for His mercy. It's like if you're Jewish, you have, some, you have some family history here. God came a long time ago and made some promises to your, your great-great-great-grandparents. If you're a Gentile from the nations of the world, you don't really have that family lineage. So when God comes and just rescues you and pulls you out of the mud and adopts you into the family and brings you into the covenant, all you can say is, wow, you're so merciful. That's kind of, that's kind of the feeling that I, I get from that. You'll notice here too, it says, Yeshua became a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. So, for the Gentiles, it's the mercy of God. For the Jewish people, it's the truth of God. And I want to break down that, that word, the truth of God, for you. Um, often in English today, truth means a set of facts or reality, that kind of concept. But here, the truth of God, the Greek word is aletheia. Everybody say aletheia. It's number 225 in the Strong's. Um, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, Aletheia is the word they use to translate the Hebrew word emet. Everybody say emet. Alright, so you have emet in the Hebrew, aletheia in the Greek, and it's translated as truth in the English. Alright, emet in the Hebrew is usually used as a poetic couplet. Chesed, the emet. So chesed and emet. Um, that, that term is used several times in the Parsha where where um, Eliezer was going to get a bride for, uh, a bride for Isaac. Um, it, it's, it's like a covenant term. Uh, it's usually translated like showing 
loving kindness and truth, something like that. Chesed and emet. Chesed is like covenant devotion, loyalty. Emet is a similar word. It means like being true to somebody, right? So in this context, emet or aletheia means relational truth, like being true to somebody, being faithful. That's the concept, eh? So when we put this word aletheia or emet in what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, Yeshua came to display to the Jewish people. He's saying, Yeshua came to glorify God for His faithfulness to the Jewish people. So everything, everything about Yeshua, everything that Yeshua does in the life of a believer from the Jewish people should glorify God for His faithfulness to His covenants, His faithfulness to His promises that He made a long time ago. What would be, what would be some examples of this? Like some promises that... God made to Israel a long time ago. I think one of the big ones is, I will give you the land of Israel forever. He didn't say temporarily. He didn't say it had an expiration date at the end of the first temple era or the end of the second temple era. He said forever. And in fact, there are prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that haven't come true yet relating to the, to the people of Israel living in the land of Israel. Like the last eight chapters of Ezekiel talk about all the tribes of Israel being reinstated in the land and having their own portions in a way that has, the land of Israel has never been distributed. So that's still going to happen. All the tribes of Israel will be living in that geographical territory that some people want to call Israel and some people want to call Palestine when Yeshua comes back. And that, when Yeshua comes back and He gives the land of Israel to the covenant people of God, who have remained true to Him, and who are followers of Yeshua, that's going to glorify God for His faithfulness. It's kind of the idea there. So, um, what would be another example? Um, my mom just came back from Israel this Thursday night. I went and picked her up from the airport in Saskatoon. Actually, I'll tell you a funny little story. I almost missed her. I, I, I went at 12, and her plane landed at 12.45, but I brought a book. And I was like so engrossed in my book that I didn't kind of realize when everybody started landing and coming out and I looked up a time or two but I didn't see her. So anyway, thankfully I, I, I did catch her but um, that was kind of funny. But anyway, my mom was you know, in Israel with um, this organization Hayovel, which means the Jubilee and you're, you're, you're mostly familiar with them. The Waller family kind of spearheads it. They just finished the fall harvest with a team of I think it was over 250 people. Um, they worked hard for several months in Judea and Samaria um, helping to pull in the harvest of grapes and and other crops. And they pulled off how many? Like over 300 tons of grapes. 300 tons of grapes. Now this is this is a great example in our, in our time. Because the mission of Hayovel is to go in and just serve the Jewish people. And see the promises of God to Israel confirmed. And to glorify God for His faithfulness. So they don't go in with big Yeshua banners and say, Repent or burn. Right? They just go in quietly and they serve. And I believe that there's a very solid basis for that. Unfortunately, often in Christian history, the Christian approach has been repent or burn. And it's like, I'll tell you what you need to do, but I'm not actually going to come as a humble servant. I, I'm not going to come and say, you have a valid covenant with God and He has made promises to your fathers and stay strong, Chazak, because He's going to come through on those promises. That hasn't been the the traditional Christian approach, right? And that has changed in the last several generations. Even um, in the 1800s, in the early Zionist movement, guess who the strongest supporters of like Theodore Herzl and some of those, those Zionist founders were? Zionist Christians. They were huge. They said, this is the right thing. You have a covenant with God. And He has promised in the Word that the Jewish people are going to return in the end of days. 
So there's a very solid backing from the Zionist movement from, from its very beginning, from a Christian Zionist. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's one of those neat themes that really ties into this. So hopefully that kind of gives us a feel for Yeshua's relationship with the Jewish people then and also now. Now I, I um, want to show you an interesting picture here. I don't know if you can see it very well. Do you want to maybe hit the lights for just a second, somebody, so you can see this? Um, this, is a, this is a double mosaic from a uh, church called the Santa Sabina Church. And uh, it's, from the, uh, it's from the early Roman Catholic era, like I think the three or four hundreds. And you'll see there are two ladies. The dude on the left kind of looks like a guy, but it's actually a lady, okay? Um, yeah, I guess you wouldn't call a lady a dude. But anyway, um, so if you look at the bottom left, it says... Ecclesia Gentibus, right? And then on the right, you can see then other pictures saying Ecclesia Circumcision. That's Latin, right? But it's interesting how we can totally understand what they're saying. On the left, that, that picture is the Ecclesia of the Gentiles, the Gentile Ecclesia. On the right, they have a picture of the, the uh, Ecclesia of the Circumcision, the Jewish Ecclesia. You can flip the lights back on, thank you. Um, it's interesting that in the three slash four hundreds, the the even the Gentile believers they, they almost saw like two ecclesias. They were like, okay, there's the ecclesia of the Gentiles, and then there's the ecclesia of the circumcision. Um, I think that's kind of sad actually, because I believe that Yeshua wants his people to be one. He has one ecclesia. Yeshua is not a polygamist, as as I understand it. But it is notable because what that it says a couple key things. When this church was built and this mosaic was, was, uh, was created, there was still a legitimate Jewish community of believers in Yeshua. And they were viewed as a legitimate expression of the body of Messiah. And they weren't expected to Gentilize and become Gentiles. So even in early Roman Catholicism, based on this mosaic, we could infer that Jewish believers were welcome to continue being Jews. That's kind of, that's kind of what I would get out of that. I'll read you a quote from uh, Justin Martyr. He, uh, he, had a, he was a ethnically a Samaritan. He had a Greek philosophical background. And he was a passionate advocate for the gospel. He would still wear his philosophical garb. And he would go around like sharing the message of Yeshua with, uh, with philosophers. And he very powerfully defended the gospel of Messiah. I, you know, like, like everybody, he had some theology that in my opinion was a little off. Especially with regards to um, the standing of Israel. But um, reading, reading Justin, who was uh, like mid-100s, one, mid so about 120 years after Yeshua's ascension off the planet, it's, uh, it, it gives us some insights into how the early believers thought. So, you know, it's of historical interest. So I'll read you an interesting quote from, from Justin here. In um, his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, in chapter... Oh, I love Roman numerals. Chapter CXXX1V... It says, this, is, this, is what, this was Justin's perspective. The marriages of Jacob were types of that which Christ was about to accomplish. For it was not lawful for Jacob to marry two sisters at once. So everybody knows that, right? That wasn't right for him to do. Why did that happen? He thinks maybe it was a picture of something that Messiah was going to accomplish. And uh, put on your critical objective thinker here, okay? I'm not, I'm not teaching this to you like it's all true, but I just want us to think about this. This is an idea that was floating around in the early Yeshua movement. What do we think of this? And he serves Laban, he serves Laban for one of the daughters, and being deceived in the obtaining of the younger, he again served seven years. 
Now, Leah is your people in synagogue, he says to Trifo the Jew, but Rachel is our church. So Justin saw Leah picturing the Jewish people in the synagogue and Rachel picturing, quote, our church. And for these, and for the servants in both, Christ even now serves. For while Noah gave to the two sons the seed of the third as servants, now, on the other hand, Christ has come to restore both the free sons and the servants amongst them, conferring the same honor on all of them who keep his commandments, even as the children of the free women and the children of the bond women born to Jacob were all sons and equal in dignity. So actually, there, there's, something, there's something very solid in there. Get this, he says, um, for the servants in both, Christ even now serves. So even though he had this kind of bilateral ecclesiology, saying there are basically two ecclesias, he was saying there are servants in both. And Messiah is serving. So, so Justin, in the mid-100s, saw Jewish believers still being part of the Jewish community. That's something to note. Um, then he, you know, and then he has this thing about Noah, and how he gives one of his sons to the other two as a servant. And then he says, uh, Christ has come to restore both the free sons and the servants amongst them. And then, get this, conferring the same honor on all of them who keep his commandments. So according to Justin, there's equality between Jewish and Gentile believers, but it's about keeping his commandments. That's the basis. That's, that's actually pretty radical right there. Um, I, I, I think I could agree with that. The equality thing and the importance of the commandments of God. And then he goes on to, like, to say, even as the children of the free women and the children of the bond women born to Jacob were all sons and equal in dignity. That's, that's a really good thing to underscore also in Justin Martyr. In the early Yeshua movement, believers from the Jewish side and believers from the Gentile side, they were all sons and they were all equal in dignity. Even according to Justin Martyr, he goes on to say, And it was foretold what each should be according to rank and according to foreknowledge. Jacob served, served Laban for speckled and many spotted sheep. And Christ served even to the slavery of the cross for the various and many formed races of mankind acquiring them by the blood and mystery of the cross. That's kind of a neat insight, actually. Just like Jacob served for like, different colors of sheep and speckled ones and stuff, Yeshua served through the, what does he, what, what does he call it? The, um, the slavery of the cross, acquiring them by the blood and mystery of the cross. And then he goes on to say, Leah was weak-eyed, for the eyes of your souls are excessively weak. So he would see the Jewish people, he would see Leah typifying the Jewish people and that Leah had weak eyes, and uh, I guess he would see the Jewish people as being spiritually unperceptive. He goes on to say, um, Rachel stole the gods of Laban and has hid them to this day, and we have lost our paternal and material gods. So he saw the correlation between Leah and the Jewish people as being weak eyes, spiritually unperceptive, and he saw the correlation between Rachel and believers from the nations as being they had to leave their gods behind. Now, there is a disconnect there. Because whereas the believers from the nations had to become ex-idolaters, they had to leave their pagan gods behind, Rachel did the opposite. She stole her dad's gods and took them with him. And in fact, that might have been a cause of her premature death. That could, that could be. So I think Justin had that part backwards. If you want to read that and connect it a little more closely, the trend should be if you're a believer from the nations, your tendency will be, like Rachel, to take your false gods with you on the journey, to take your paganism, your, your parents' paganism with you when you try and go back to Israel. So what's the lesson if you're a believer from the nations? Leave the paganism behind. Cut all your ties with idolatry. Every last vestige of idolatry. 
I, I would even suggest if there are traditional festivals in the Christian world that are not in the Bible and actually were originally pagan celebrations that were tainted by idolatry, maybe, maybe it would be best to take a lesson from Rachel and just leave those behind and go to Israel and get some new festivals. Maybe even the ones in the Bible. Maybe the ones that Yeshua celebrated. Hey, if, if Yeshua celebrated them and they'll point to him, they're probably pretty good. So there's, there's a quotation from you for, for, for you from Justin Martyr, uh, some early church history for you. Um, I'll just cover a couple of popular misconceptions from this story for you. Um, there's, um, there's a prophecy in Ezekiel 37. Uh, when Ezekiel prophesied, the northern tribes of Israel were already scattered into the nations, were in, were in the process of assimilating and losing their identity for the most part. The southern tribes coalesced under the kingdom of David and uh, became the Jewish people. And in this prophecy in Ezekiel 37, he, he compares it to two sticks. And he does, this, he does this like object lesson where he grabs two sticks and he puts them together in his hand. And he says, Yahweh says, I'm going to bring all the people of Israel together in my hand from both of these factions and they're going to be one in my hand. And uh, this is rather controversial today. Basically, some people believe that happened already in the Second Temple era. Other people believe that hasn't happened yet and it's still going to happen. I, I'm one of those people, actually, the, the rabbis of early Judaism in the Talmud, the majority opinion of theirs was, this hasn't happened yet and it's still going to happen in the future. There are going to be people that come back from the nations who are part of the people of Israel and God's going to join them together with the Jewish people. So I'm of that opinion. Um, some people make this like the hill that they die on. Some people make this like their core theology that they will use to separate over. I don't do that, but you know that's my personal opinion. But sometimes people who believe that God is still going to rejoin all the people of Israel, kind of both houses of Israel, that idea, they'll say, oh yeah, Yeshua said he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the northern tribes. Yeshua was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Ephraim or whatever, right? And um, it is true that the gospel was designed to go to all the people of Israel and all the nations. But if you read this verse in context, Yeshua is not saying that he was sent firstly to the lost tribes of Israel. He was saying, I was sent to the Jewish community. I was sent to the disconnected people in the Jewish community. So that's, that's something to take note of. Sometimes this phrase, catchphrase, the lost sheep of the house of Israel is misappropriated to the northern tribes, wherever they may be. And, um, but in context, Yeshua is talking about the Jewish people there. Um, we already kind of covered this, like how Yeshua came to the Jewish people to glorify God for His faithfulness, and He came to the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Um, Sometimes there's this other idea out there that when you become a believer in Yeshua, you are no longer Gentile. You are a former Gentile. And that's based on a reading in Ephesians 2 where Paul says, formerly you who were Gentiles in the flesh or are Gentiles in the flesh. And there are a couple ways of translating that, right? One of them would imply you are no longer Gentile. You're a former Gentile. Okay, so some, for some people, based on that verse, Gentile is like a dirty word. Like if you're a believer from the nations, and someone calls you a Gentile, like, you get your hackles up, and you say, I'm not a Gentile. <laughs> and, you know, kind of hiss and spat a little bit and stuff. Um, I very much affirm the truth that all believers through faith in Yeshua are part of the covenants of promise in Ephesians 2. They've been brought near. The middle wall is, is down. All of that, right? They're all children of Abraham. So I really believe in that equality and, like, inclusion theology. You, you, you know, I've talked about this in, in detail before, so I won't go into it too much. But at the same time, it is notable that Paul continued to call believers from the nations Gentiles after they came to faith. Um, 
In Romans, for instance, several times he addresses the non-Jewish believers in Rome as, quote, you Gentiles. In fact, in Romans 16, he refers to the congregations that he was working with as, quote, like the ecclesias of the Gentiles. So that, those, those were Paul's words, right? I assume that he wasn't off on that. It would be a little arrogant for me to say, I know better than Paul and he shouldn't have used those terms. So we kind of have a dual thing going on here, right? Believers from the nations have been included in the covenants that make Israel Israel. They are full of shares in those promises, which if you want to read it in context, would include the promise of the land of Israel. But at the same time, they're still Gentiles. Yeah, it's, it almost seems like a paradox, but it isn't, right? So anyway, just sometimes I feel like people are so, they so want to like de-emphasize where they came from, that they kind of forget about their story. And it's like, if you're a believer from the nations, and Yeshua saved you, you have a powerful testimony of the mercy of God. So never, never lose your testimony. Don't devalue your testimony. That's your story. Your story is, God came and saved me. Sheer mercy. Total grace. Wow! So cherish that. Be proud of that. Tell your story. Right? Um... There's another mistaken idea out there that Yeshua was, had a passion for the Jewish community and he had this priority to reach them, but only until he died. And then everything changed and all the previous covenants were cancelled and uh, it was the beginning of a new dispensation. Uh, that's, that's kind of an idea out there. Um, or some people would say the covenants of, with, that God had with Israel stood until the second temple was destroyed. And then he basically wrote the Jewish people a, a certificate of divorce and sent them away, and that's why, of course, they don't exist anymore. Or wait a minute. Oh, they do. Oh, that's interesting. Um, okay. Um, I would suggest to you that's false too. Uh, Paul said in Romans 9 very clearly, in talking about physical Israel, his Jewish brothers who don't believe in Yeshua said, he said, theirs are the covenants and the promises. He didn't say theirs were. He said, theirs are the covenants. And he said it in the plural, right? So that would include like the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So, when Yeshua died and was raised from the dead, that didn't cancel the covenants of God. When the second temple was destroyed, that didn't cancel God's covenant with Israel any more than when the first temple was destroyed. So Yeshua still has a massive passion for the Jewish people and to see the promises of God to Israel confirmed. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you six practical applications from this story about Yeshua and this... Uh, this, this uh, desperate lady who like pressed through to get his blessing. Um, number one, like, do practical things to cultivate your passion for the Jewish people. Because, um, you know, if you come from an evangelical background, you'll have a very strong passion to reach your city, to reach the nations of the world. You know, there's a, there's a big missions focus, and that's awesome. But sometimes the area where we're weak is a passion to see the Jewish people reached for Yeshua. Um, I'll give you a very practical way of doing that. Identify with the Jewish people. So instead of talking about the Jewish people as them and they, talk about them as us and we. I mean, I, I'm Jewish, so that's how I talk about the Jewish people. But even if you're a believer from the nations, and you have no idea if you have a drop of Jewish blood in you, I encourage you, stand with the Jewish people, identify with the Jewish people, and when you talk about them, talk about them as us and we. I'll tell you a little story actually about that, that kind of underscored that to me. Um, we, had a, we had a guy come from Shaw to do some work at our place this week, and um, 
His name is Wally. He's, a, he's Polish originally. He's a great guy. He already came over once and we chatted with him. We told him about, a little about our faith and he thought it was interesting that we're Jewish believers in Jesus because he's Catholic. And um, So anyway, he, this time he walked in the door and the first thing, he, the, the first two questions he said are, he's really to the point. He's like, so, and he had a Polish accent. I wish I could copy it, but I can't. But he's like, so how's your church? And so we said a little bit and he said, so do you think you're going to go in and um, attack Iran? I was like, I don't think he means me personally. I think he's talking about you in the sense of you, your people, right? But did you notice that? Wally looked at me, and when he, when he said you, he was speaking to you as an individual, and you the nation. And if you are in a Messianic community, or if you are in the body of Messiah in general, welcome to the club. You're part of the family. People are going to look at you like that, increasingly. So just get used to it and start talking about Israel as us and we. I, as a Jewish believer, I invite you to do that. I give you full, privil- uh, full permission to do that. All right? it's, it's not that you're replacing the Jewish people, but you're recognizing what God has said. You're included. You are part of the family. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two on a practical level. Um, hmm. tell, one of you, tell me somebody that I don't know. Um, just tell me somebody that you, let's say a coworker of yours that I don't know. Tom Brown. Okay, you know, I love Tom Brown. Like, I, I'm really passionate about seeing Tom Brown come to Yeshua. You know, uh, I could tell you that, and you might not be very convinced, because I've never met Tom Brown. I don't know him. It's really hard to love somebody that you've never met before, or that you don't know. So if you want to, do, if you want to see Yeshua's passion for the Jewish people grow in you, get to know them. Right? Don't stand at a distance, and just say, God bless Israel, and throw money. Get to know the Jewish people. I'll give you a couple of practical ways you can do that. Um, read Jewish history. I, if you've never read just a book of Jewish history, I encourage you to read it. Because there's a lot of Jewish history in the, quote, silent years between Malachi and Matthew. There's also a lot of Jewish history after the book of Revelation in the last, whatever, 1900 years. Uh, and there's some great books out there. Paul Johnson has a book... Uh, on, on the history of the Jewish people, that's good. Um, there's a classic by Max Diamond called, I think it's called Jews, God, and History. That's a good one. Um, Charlotte's a keener. She's probably read all those already. But I encourage you, just get a book on the history of the Jewish people and begin reading it. Get to know the Jewish people. Because you know what? That's your story too. Um, another thing you can do, watch documentaries. If you've never seen a documentary on the Holocaust, it will be, it will be, it will be a heart-jerking experience for you. But I encourage you, watch documentaries on the Holocaust. Because that's, that's your history too. And in the process, you will develop a passion for the Jewish people that Yeshua himself has. Um, and read uh, no, yeah, read Holocaust stories, exactly, right? Um, another thing you can do, if you don't have a Siddur, a Jewish prayer book, I encourage you to get a Siddur. Because quite frankly, you will encounter more of the Jewish soul in a Siddur than even in the Bible. Because Jewish people, most Jewish people spend more time in the prayer book than they do in the Bible. So if, as you read traditional Jewish prayers, you're going to be like, wow, that's the heartbeat of the Jewish people. These are their national hopes. This is, this is the dream that a Jewish person cherishes. And you know, if, you're, if you're religious, that you pray for several times a day. As you read some of those prayers, you're really going to get to know the, know the Jewish soul better. And you, I guarantee you, you will feel Yeshua's passion for the Jewish people in a way that you never have. Um, Fourthly, and this is, this is something on a broader level that we as a community are doing, structure your community in such a way, and I don't care if you're Messianic or Christian or whatever, structure your community in such a way that it will be relatively open and friendly to Jewish people. Right? 
go on the warpath against anti-Semitism, against anti-Semitic theology, if people believe that the covenants that make Israel Israel are done away with, that person will automatically have some latent anti-Semitism because they believe Israel is illegitimate. They don't believe that Israel has a covenant with God. So every one of us in this room are an agent in the body of Christ on the warpath against anti-Semitism to root it out and to, to bring in truth where there's error. Uh, that's something that we can do. Another very simple thing is like, use the language of the Jewish people. Not because you have to. Make it a love thing. Make it a thing where like, Yeshua is passionate to see the Jewish people know him. And I'm passionate about that too. So I'm going to use the language of Yeshua. I'm going to use the language of the Jewish people. That's, uh, that's, that's one reason that I, I encourage you. You know, learn the Hebrew names and titles of God. There's, I, I, there's not, I have no problem with using the name Jesus, but why not use the name Yeshua? It's closer to the Jewish heart. That's, that's how I would understand it. So those are some practical things, number four. Uh, number five, we talked about this last Shabbat. You don't want to even dream about making disciples if you're not a disciple yourself. If you can imagine reproducing a bunch of yous and having a bunch of yous running around, if that's like your worst nightmare, then it's not time to start focusing on making disciples. It's time to focus on your own discipleship growth, right? And uh, I referenced something that the Master said uh, last week. I'm going I'm to mention it again this week because it's very, uh, it's very uh, relevant. Uh, you still use some graphic speech to just jar people into hearing what he had to say. He said, like, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you to have someone like, tie a millstone around your neck and just have them throw you in the ocean. Uh, I, I think, like, it, if you, that's, that's a really graphic term, right? Like, people are probably like, wow, that, that was pretty violent. He just said that. That would be like, that would be like me saying, you know, if, 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 it would be better for you to have someone take you out back and put a bullet through your head than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's kind of if you used language like that. That's kind of the idea Yeshua was communicating. Two questions. Who are these little ones? What does it mean to cause them to stumble? I, I, in my understanding, these little ones could mean children or it could mean baby believers. I think it means both. What does it mean to cause them to stumble? Causing them to stumble is a Hebrew idiom. That is an expression that's used in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, the Hebrew idiom causing someone to stumble means causing them to violate Torah. So if God has a commandment and He says, do this, and you say, eh, you don't have to do that. That's not really important. And you do that either by what you say or by your lifestyle. That's causing a baby believer to stumble. If God said, don't do something in the Torah, and you say, eh, that doesn't apply anymore. Yeah, you can do that. No problem. You've got grace, right? That's causing a baby believer to stumble. And that's especially grave when believers from the nations come to the Jewish people, new Jewish believers, and they say, yeah, you know that Torah thing? Eh, it's not very important anymore. You know, God said to honor Shabbat, and that this is an eternal sign of His covenant. God said, don't work on Shabbat. He said certain things, but you know what? Eh, whatever. You know, if our lifestyle says that, if the way we teach says that, we're in very grave danger. We might be one of those people that would be better off for someone to take us out back and just shoot us in the head. Be done with it. Um, there, there are lots of examples, right? Just go through the Torah, look at the commandments of God, and, and realize these are still legitimate today. These are, these are love expressions between the God of Israel and the people of Israel. So if you're a believer from the nations, and you have the honor of discipling a Jewish person, I beg you, please don't teach them to be sloppy with the Torah. Please don't influence them to play fast and loose with the mitzvot. Now, there's a difference, of course, between the written word of God 
and a lot of the traditions that have been heaped on it to make things complicated and make it a big burden, right? I'm not saying teach Jewish people to go with all of the complications and the burden part, but just the straight written word of God. I believe Yeshua is raising up the Messianic movement to, to represent him to the Jewish world and to disciple Jewish people as they come in. And I, I want to be a part of that. I want us to be a part of that. So we talked about being ready and how sometimes that precedes new disciples, the Father sending us new disciples. That could be a part of it. So I just encourage you, as you read through the Torah this year, be asking, Father, what about this one? Am I doing something you said not to do? Am I not doing stuff you said to do? I mean, don't get legalistic about it, right? It's not about your righteousness with the Father. It's a love thing. It's about connecting with the passion in Yeshua's heart. It's about, it's about kind of coming alongside Him and running with Him like, like the lover and His beloved in the Song of Songs, right? It's a love thing. Um, those, are, those are five practical things that, uh, that I, I, I could give you from, um, from the story about Yeshua and who He said He was um, sent to. And I'll leave you with this thought. This is something I more just want to like raise for discussion. We're not going to get into too much detail with it. But in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 10, we have Yaakov. You have to realize Yaakov was like one of two boys who were being groomed for clan leadership. So this guy was like a manager to the core, right? He was, he was a real leader. He probably couldn't help himself. And so he comes to the... And he's also an expert shepherd. I mean, this guy's business is taking care of sheep, Right? They probably had like a thousand people in their clan. They had tons of sheep, so he knew what he was talking about. So he takes this trip, he arrives at Padanaram, and there are these shepherds and they're just goof-offs. Like they're just, they're not practicing the best sheep herding business that you could. They're all standing around with this big rock on the well, waiting until everybody's there, and then they'll all roll it off together and they'll all water the sheep. And Jacob's like, what are you doing? Why don't you just roll off the rock and give them their water and go, and go pasture them? This is a great time to pasture them. And he knew what he was talking about. And they're like, well, that's not how we do it. And I, I, kind of, I kind of like the humor in that. It's like, remember, remember we learned the English word homeostasis? And physically homeostasis is like what keeps your heart rate going, which, which uh, moderates your, your body temperature and all these things, and it's good. But mental homeostasis is where you stay the same and you just don't want to change. You don't want to change the way you think. You don't want to change the way you do life. And that's dangerous, right? So it's like physical homeostasis is your best friend. Psychological homeostasis is one of your worst enemies. And uh, these shepherds, I, I guess they would, um, they probably had something of a, what would you call it, a case of career homeostasis or methodological uh, homeo- homeostasis. That's in, what exactly do they say? Yeah, he says, um, why do the sheep and go pasture them? But they said, we can't until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. They're like waiting for someone to show up and roll the stone off the mouth of the well, right? So Jacob goes, he sees Rachel and he has like an emotional meltdown. He starts crying. He starts bawling and he goes over and kisses her. And he goes like and single-handedly rolls the stone off the thing, right? I, I love that. Like, I don't know if he just had this like burst of superhuman strength because Rachel was so beautiful and he just had to impress her or, or what the deal was. But um, it's an interesting example of how like we as humans have our traditions and they're like our sacred cow and don't mess with them, Right? And if people say, why do you do stuff that way? That's not totally effective or that's not the most productive way. It's like, uh, uh, well, that's the way we do it. We do it this way because that's the way we do it. It's like this little like short circuit method of reasoning, right? And, and we see that in Matthew chapter 15 too. Like Yeshua is really welcoming and open with people. He's a really gentle guy. People enjoyed being around him. But then when it comes to like entrenched religious people who don't 
who aren't open to the truth and don't want to reason, he just like lays into them, hey? And uh, that's what he does in this. And actually, they're the, they're the ones to pick the fight. They're like, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? And he says, how come you nullify the word of God with your traditions? It's kind of one up, right? But um, can you hear his passion there? Like Yeshua in, in Matthew 15, he has a real passion for the written word of God. He has a real passion for God's commandments. So when religious dudes come along and they make these, this system of traditions that eclipses the commands of God and actually derails people from keeping Torah, Yeshua, from how it sounds, he actually got angry about that. Like he really lit into those people. He called them on the carpet for it. And it's crazy because we'll look at that and be like, oh, those Pharisees, you know, those traditions of the elders, they just, they were just nullifying God's commands and making up their own thing. But we would never do that. No, of course. We, we're, we're biblical. We do things the biblical way. Only the Bible. Sola Scriptura. It's, but it's hilarious because we do the exact same thing because we're humans, just like the Pharisees, right? And it takes like the Spirit of God coming in and applying the Word of God to our lives. And it takes us looking at Yeshua and being like, we're going to follow Him and we're going to imitate Him and we're going to cut all the other stuff out of our lives to, to see change. So that's, that's a practical thing from this parsha that really jumps out. Oh, um, basically, we're all there. We're all like those Pharisees who have traditions, and we do our traditions, and then we have the written word, and we don't do it sometimes. Like even, um, okay, I'm not going to get into it, but there are lots of examples of that. Basically, here's, here's the thing, though. We're all on a journey of like walking away from un- like unhelpful traditions and walking into a biblical lifestyle. And it's a step-by-step-by-step journey, right? It doesn't happen overnight. So here's just a really practical thing. As you're reading through the Bible, whenever you encounter an action thing, God says, do this or don't do that. If God says, do this, and you're like, well, I don't do that because... And then you make up your reasons or your tradition. That's you. And that's your opportunity to be like, God, you know what? You said to do that, and I've never done that. And of course, I have my really good reasons and my theological excuses, but I, I want to do what you said. So let's do that. I'm willing to change, right? Um, similarly, if God said, don't do something, and you're like, wow, I've done that all my life. I really enjoy doing that. That's part of my family tradition. You know, that's the opportunity to say, are you going to choose your tradition, or are you going to choose what God says? So, you know, Yeshua lit into the Pharisees for that. He was upset about it. I think sometimes Yeshua, like, has a word for us about that, too. And it doesn't matter whether we're from Christian or Jewish backgrounds. We all, we all have our stuff, eh? I'll, I'll share with you one thing that I'm really wrestling with. And uh, this... I'll give you an example for me right now. Like, Yeshua said, go into the world and make Talmudim, make disciples for me. That's, like, that's, that's our job. That's my job, right? And I've really been questioning lately, what am I doing in my life to do that? And what do I have in my life that is just the way I've always done things or my way of doing things or my set of traditions that are keeping me from making disciples for Yeshua? I only have so much time in the day. I, you know, even... Let's say with our community. I wonder if gathering in the morning is the most productive way of connecting with our city, being available, making disciples. Um, having the type of format that we have for our gatherings. I wonder if that's the most, most productive or helpful thing, right? I'm not saying that it is or isn't, right? I'm just saying, I want to always be questioning. And I want to be saying, is this helping me to keep the commandments of God better? Is this helping me to accomplish the mission that Yeshua has for us as a community? Um, is the lingo that I'm using conducive to reaching people and making disciples? You know, it goes on and on, right? So, I mean, I'm definitely in that process. I'm going through change. And, um, 
Yeah, I'll leave. Yeah, final thought to the process. I guess we all are. If you're not, welcome you to join join the journey today. And uh, I'll just you know I'll raise this question, and then I'll stop, and we can talk about it. But what are some things in our lives, either now or in the past, where God has come and been like, "This is my word. This is your tradition. What's going to be?" Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together, and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.